0: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au
3: Solidarity forever!
2: Good morning everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station, 3CR, on this very fine morning. Uh, And if you're podcasting, that's good too. Hope it's fine there. Uh, We're going to uh, be uh, hearing from Dr Yawa Hawari, uh, who delivered the Edward Saad Saeed Memorial Lecture on the 13th of this month. It's a very sobering piece but also a. it's great to hear a voice from the occupied territories and uh, get an understanding of uh, how things are for the Palestinians. Uh, come After that we're going to hear from Carl Fitzgerald who is launching a new NGO grounded community land trust advocacy. How can uh, people get uh roofs over their head in a uh reasonable and uh, uh financially uh viable fashion that's the discussion anyway moving right along there is this is the week that was uh Kevin uh, takes out the knife to the week and uh we're going to hear from Dave Ball assistant secretary the MUA Victorian branch about Spitzer and uh The Danish multinational that's hell bent on holding the Australian economy to ransom to boost its profits. If we have enough time, we might be able to hear a little bit about the uh, age pension, what's going on, and the CAP campaign. But before we do, let's hear about what's going on during the weekend. Join us for the 2022 edition of The Change, Definitions of Freedom, Interactive Theatre, 7 to 9pm on the 16th of December at the Honda Showrooms, Hoddle Street. We're also having an exhibition and preview from 5pm Thursday, 24th of November at The Store, Abbotsford Convent. Find out more on Facebook at The Change, Definitions of Freedom, The Change presented by United Struggle Project, a 3CR supporter.
0: Tune in to Rest is Survival, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability Broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're talking about the role of rest in the anti-capitalist revolution, with programming by multiply-marginalised disabled people and disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Day 2022
2: well, it wasn't this weekend, but it is coming up. Um, the uh, Edward, Edward uh, Said Lecture is an annual event. Uh, he was an important uh, intellectual academic, American-Palestinian academic. He was, in fact, uh, responsible for the uh, uh, creation of um, the postcolonial colonial studies, uh, which, of course, uh, informs uh, modern theory about uh, what's going on in this uh, part of uh, history. And uh, Dr. Yawari was the um, uh, deliverer of this lecture this year. She was delivering it from occupied territory uh, and uh, we'll hear what she had to say.
0: Thank you, everyone. Um, And again, thank you for the the invitation to speak with you all tonight. Um, As mentioned, I am calling in from colonised Palestine, which has been surviving and resisting against settler colonial erasure for over seven decades. Um, I know that I don't need to explain uh, settler colonialism to all of you in Australia, but there is something important to say and highlight, and that's Uh, Whilst all cases of settler colonialism have their peculiarities and, and different characteristics, they always follow the same pattern and logic of indigenous erasure. And they end up copying each other's narratives and mechanisms of oppression much more than we know. And the Israeli regime is no exception to that. And it's important to mention this because one of the underpinnings of the Zionist narrative is that it's a project in Palestine or its project in Palestine um, and, and the Israeli state ex- itself are exceptional. And this is a narrative that adopts uh, notions such as, you know, the, the Israeli state surviving against all odds uh, and that the Zionist project is about a people returning to their homeland as promised by biblical scriptures, et cetera, et cetera. This is not an exceptional narrative at all and actually world over settler colonialists and even bog standard colonialists have used similar language to justify colonisation of indigenous and native land. For example, settler colonialists in West Africa in the 1800s used a biblical narrative um, and they claimed that they were returning to the original land of civilization where it all first began uh, and that they were the rightful owners of this land. And similarly in Australia, settler colonialists used this notion of terra nullius, empty land to claim ownership. In the 1930s, during fascist Italy's so-called pacification efforts in Libya, Mussolini sought to establish a new type of colony on appropriated Libyan land. And one of the underpinnings of this particular project was the notion that Italy was returning to Libya, which had once been under the Roman Empire. And so the Italian government built entire settler colonies prior to the arrival of these Italian uh, settler farmers. The homes were already furnished. They built all these replica institutions of uh, social, cultural and political life uh, of those in Italy. And even before David ben Gurion said it in the 1950s in Palestine, Mussolini used the biblical metaphor of making the desert bloom to imagine the fascist revitalization of Libya. Now, of course, in, in Libya and in Palestine, this making the desert bloom meant the land had to be emptied of its indigenous population to make room for the settlers. And we know that most of the, the, the desert in Palestine is in the Nakba area, which is in the south. And during the 1948 Nakba, the Zionist forces expelled almost 90 percent of the 100,000 Bedouins that resided there to the West Bank, to Gaza, to Jordan and Egypt, and today, thousands of Bedouins who are descendants of those that survived that original ethnic cleansing in 1948 are still facing house demolitions, displacement, resettlement uh, in permanent towns to facilitate the Israeli regime plan to domesticate the desert and reclaim it for its own settlements. So it's, it's not only these narratives, though, that are shared among these colonial and settler colonial projects, it's also mechanisms of oppression. This year, Amnesty International came out with a report condemning the Israeli regime to be one that is committing apartheid against the Palestinian people. And it comes off the back of other similar human rights organization reports, but more importantly, it comes off the back of many Palestinian scholars, activists and experts who have identified apartheid as Israel's mechanism of containment and oppression of the Palestinian people. Now, of course, apartheid is known globally for what happened in South Africa. But even in international law, the definition makes it clear that this is a system of domination that can take different shapes and forms and can have different characteristics. And even settler colonialists themselves recognize that they are not exceptional and they look to each other to maintain the oppression of indigenous people. So, for example, the Israeli regime and the South African apartheid regime were on very friendly terms during the South Africa uh, apartheid era. And declassified South African documents even show how the Israeli regime offered to sell South Africa nuclear weapons in the 1950s, which, of course, it denied because the Israeli regime neither denies nor confirms that it is the only regime in the Middle East with nuclear weapons. Now, the most obvious example of uh, cosy relations between settler colonial states is that of the U.S. and Israel. And this, of course, is a relationship that is not only based on shared values of racism and colonialism, but also of mutual interests. It's to the U.S.'s benefit that it maintains such a strong ally in the Middle East, almost functioning like an imperial buffer. And for the Israeli regime, the literally billions of dollars in military aid also comes in pretty useful. Now, why have I talked about de-exceptionalizing the Israeli regime and the Zionist settler colonial project in a talk about imagining the future? Well, it's because I think it's vitally important that that we as Palestinians uh, and, and many of you as allies of the Palestinian struggle, understand intimately our current condition and that it's not so different from other conditions of oppressed and colonized people in history. And I think from these shared uh, shared and similar experiences of invasion and erasure, we can begin to paint a picture of a liberated Palestinian future. But I think I've just made it sound very easy and it's, that's actually far from the reality. Indian novelist and, and writer Arundhati Roy once wrote, remember this, Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Now, Roy's words are not only optimistic, they're also a very clear refusal of the unjust global reality that we live in, a reality in which the world continues on an unstoppable path of self-destruction and where power structures that repress the majority of the Earth's population continue to be entrenched. The environment is being devastated to satiate unquenchable greed. The gap between rich and poor grows larger gender-based violence is a feature of daily life everywhere and the colonial subjugation of the global south is continuous. So in this reality it really is a remarkable feat to be able to remain optimistic and imagine a different future and particularly speaking from Palestine I struggle to hear the breathing of this other word that Roy writes about. Even when I shut out the you know, the deafening noise of injustice and, and oppression, I really struggled to hear even a whisper of this other world. But it is important for us to recognize that the inability to see beyond the present and imagine a world otherwise is not a coincidence. It's actually by design. Now, among many things, settler colonial projects control perceptions of reality that bind indigenous and colonized people into a seemingly perpetual state of being. And this control is cemented through the building of colonial infrastructure, the establishment of colonial institutions, the obliteration of the traces of Indigenous life and land. And ultimately, it creates this facade of permanency, which situates the futures of Indigenous and colonised people within colonial borders. So in Palestine these colonial manifestations include for example the ever increasing enlargement of israeli settlements the incarceration of thousands uh, uh, and the over seven decades long exile of more than half of our people and this oppression in palestine is multi-layered you know under settler colonialism other power structures such as patriarchy and capitalism are intensified keeping the majority of people oppressed and subjugated And for its part, the Israeli regime has long sought to bolster patriarchal and and capitalist structures in order, in an effort to continuously disrupt Palestinian society. So I'll give you some examples. Um, Israeli police often work with patriarchal clan heads in the 48 territories in order to sort of solve intra-communal issues. And these practices have often left women at risk and and vulnerable to those that cause them harm. And it's only increased their marginalization from society. The Israeli regime forces also use gendered violence to deter women from resistance and political activism. In both these ways, they entrench patriarchy within Palestinian uh, communities. Now, the Israeli regime has also used racial capitalist mechanisms to oppress Palestinians. For example, Palestinian workers from the West Bank are funneled into the 48 territories as cheap and exploitable, uh, as a cheap and exploitable workforce. They work in very laborious and sometimes hazardous jobs for low salaries with no social protections such as insurance, etc. Meanwhile, a small group of very powerful Palestinian capitalists in the West Bank are able to exploit the situation for personal profit. And the Palestinian Authority's adoption of a strictly neoliberal economic program with its cuts to the public sector and expansion into private enterprises has exasperated all of this. Now, these structures intersect to create a situation where the majority of Palestinians are oppressed by both colonialism, patriarchy and capitalism.
2: You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're listening to Dr. Yara Harari, who is delivering the Edouard Said Memorial Lecture. This
0: is the last part. And this oppression is so deeply embedded. It's so difficult for us to imagine a future where its manifestations are not a daily reality. And even when we find the space or energy to think about a future, Palestinians are constantly told by international actors what they can and cannot expect from the future. So for the last few decades, the two-state solution was presented as the most feasible, the most rational solution by the international community, and this was premised on the notion of two states for two people, something that dates back to the 1947 UN partition plan. Now, the Palestinian leadership had long rejected partition, uh, always calling for the liberation of Palestine from the grips of Zionist settler colonialism, but in 1974, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, made its first nod to the solution in its 10-point program, which called for the establishment of a national authority over every part of Palestinian territory that is liberated, with the aim of completing the liberation of all Palestinian territory. In other words, they accepted that liberation might be territorial, territorially partial. Uh, partial. Nearly two decades later, this position was formally adopted by the PLO at the Oslo Accords in what Edward Said called a Palestinian Versailles. For much of the international community, the Oslo Accords were embraced as this rational phased peace plan that would put an end to the so-called Middle East crisis. The irony was that the Israeli regime, all the while, continued to build settlements and expand into the 1967 occupied territories during the the negotiations and continued even after halting the negotiations. The Israeli illegal settlement enterprise continues to expand today, um, depriving Palestinians from their land and natural resources and further entrenching Israel's settler colonial role uh, and systematic subjugation of the Palestinian people. And even with the obvious failure of the Oslo Accords to bring about a sovereign Palestinian state, the international community still touts the two-state solution as the default formula for a Palestinian future. And they're always based on these notions of feasibility and rationality. In other words, what's considered most possible and acceptable within the current circumstances. These notions are often used as an attempt to limit Palestinian imagining. And when Palestinians steer away from the future possibilities possibilities set out for them by the hegemonic narrative, they're often patronised and ignored. So considering all of this diverting from the parameters, um, these parameters and imagining our liberation and a future in Palestine is understandably difficult. Yet challenging them has to be uh, understood as a crucial part of the liberation struggle. At a conference in 2014, I, I believe it was, feminist scholar Angela Davis asserted this in the context of collective liberation. And she said, you have to act as if it was possible to radically transform the world. And you have to do this all the time. So in our context, this means believing that our liberation from Zionist settler colonialism is not only possible, but also inevitable. Bringing about a society in which people no longer suffer from the oppressive manifestations of capitalism, colonialism and patriarchy requires us to redefine our national liberation struggle to one that embodies the kind of society that we want to build. And this means that our political spaces and discourses must reflect this imagined future. Imagining our liberation and incorporating it into our political movement is also where we might find joy amidst all of this despair. Italian feminist scholar Silvia Federici wrote about how important this is, this notion of joy in politics. Uh, and I want to quote something, um, I want to quote from something she said. She said, Joyful politics is politics that change, changes your life for the better already in the presence. This is not to deny that political engagement often involves suffering. In fact, our political involvement often is born of suffering. But the joy is knowing and deciding that we can do something about it. It is recognising that we share our pain with other people. It is feeling the solidarity of those around us. And so whilst the future will always be uncertain, We have to create better and more joyful spaces among one another today so that we can begin to imagine the outlines of a better world. Crucially, we can no longer accept that the Palestinian struggle to be free of settler colonial oppression is isolated from the Palestinian people's struggle to be free from other forces of oppression. Our liberation movement has to be one that tackles all forms of oppression and envisions a society that is equal and just for all. But we also have to recognise that the Palestinian struggle is inherently tied to other global and international struggles against oppression, in whatever form that might be. And I think in the last decade or so, Palestinians are rebuilding connections that were once taken for granted. If we look back to the 1960s and 1970s, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organisation, had primarily modelled its agenda, its goals and its tactics on the Algerian front for liberation, for national liberation, which triumphed over French settlers. The PLO identified similar structures of invasion and sought camaraderie and expertise from Algerian leaders as did Black Panthers and other revolutionaries from Latin America. Amal Cabral, the Pan-African revolutionary once said, Muslims make the pilgrimage to Mecca, Christians to the Vatican and the national liberation movements to Algiers. And indeed, after liberation from French settler colonialism, Algeria opened its doors to revolutionaries around the world. And this was a period that really embodied the spirit of internationalism. And importantly, anti-colonial struggle was at the heart of it. From Latin America to North Africa to East Asia, we saw revolutionaries, fighters, leaders donning the Palestinian kafir in a nod to solidarity, but also shared struggle. Now, a lot has happened since then. Revolutionary connections um, have since weakened, especially with the onset of neoliberalism and policies of de development, which have insisted on depoliticization of civil societies and the grassroots. But also, the strength of narratives can't be underestimated. The war on terror that dominated the 2000s and how that demonised the Palestinian struggle for liberation, as well as wreaking havoc and destruction all over the wider Middle East. And the more recent weaponization of anti-Semitism, which among many things has seen the character assassination of political leaders who support the Palestinian struggle, like Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. In Palestine itself, the internationalist politics that once, deta- that once dominated the scene up until the first intifada dissipated, and we saw a deliberate process of depoliticization and the breaking of these internationalist ties. What eventually happened was that the Palestinian leadership shifted its discourse and policies from liberation and anti-colonial struggle to that of state building in the West Bank and Gaza. Among many things, this also meant that Palestine was shrunk down now, not only to the West Bank and Gaza, but also only to certain parts of those occupied territories in the West Bank, we're talking about these tiny area a's um stands, essentially but amidst all of this doom and gloom, if we look back to this past decade, I think we have seen a revitalization of this international internationalist politics I outlined in the sixties and seventies. It's a politics that insists that Palestine is part of the progressive political package, that it has a natural place in progressive and radical organising against imperialism, against capitalism, against climate change, and that you can't be feminist and not support the Palestinian liberation struggle. It's a politics that is not allowing Palestine to be the exception in socialist or in leftist spaces, Because many of the culprits that are oppressing Palestinians are similarly oppressing others around the world. The arms and and security companies are perfect examples of that. So the framing of Palestine as part of an internationalist uh, and radical package is important, not just for allies, but also for Palestinians. And there has to be a real reckoning with the internal domestic forces that help and exacerbate our colonial conditions. And very specifically, I'm talking about capitalist and patriarchal structures, which have moved us away from collectivism towards individualism and personal gain, which is really the perfect situation for any colonial entity, because the colonised becomes susceptible to corruption and and collaboration and divisions within their own society. It serves the Israeli settler colonial regime very well to keep the Palestinian working classes, women and other marginalised groups doubly oppressed. And so I think here I'll end by saying that Palestine matters for the liberation of all of us and liberation elsewhere matters for Palestine. Every colonial capitalist and fascist regime toppled is a win for Palestine and Palestine liberation in itself is a win for humanity and a win for justice.
5: If your burden's too heavy, it's gonna break you. And you might go crashing to the ground. Just keep yourself steady and don't let it take you. Take you on down. Take you on day.
1: Well, I may beside you And don't you forget it
5: I'm with you walking down this road Together we can lighten it low. Out You wouldn't let me You were so stubborn You let me out of that dark night Radio, giving voice to the community since 1976.
2: You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we were listening to Dr. Yara Yawawi from, uh, who was delivering the uh, Edward Said Memorial Lecture from occupied Palestinian territory. We're going to move on to Carl Fitzgerald and Grounded. It's a new NGO which is going to be launched on November the 22nd, that's Tuesday, 6pm, at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. It's all about community land trust advocacy, but I'll get uh, Carl to uh, talk to you. Carl, of course, used to be on 3CR, renegade economist Great stuff. Now, Carl, uh, you're in a new incarnation in your life now. You're no longer at uh, uh, Prospect. You're now in the midst of uh, establishing a community land trust called Grounded. Tell my listeners what a community land trust is.
4: Yeah. Hello, Annie, and hello, 3CR. Good to be back on the airwaves. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we set up a new NGO to help the community land trust movement get off the ground here in Australia. We've talked about it for so long on the Renegade Economist. Uh, there'd be discussions here and there. And there was this sporadic email group that sort of kept things going and some, you know, some fantastic research from academics around the country, um, primarily Louise Crabtree Hayes. And, uh But there just hasn't been that sustained um, ability to push uh, government, the banking sector, the planning um, ministers to really uh, take community land trusts um, seriously so we could get our first land trust up and running here in Australia. So uh, I got some seed funding for the first three years and... um, Yes, all all very modest as always, but uh, it's been really encouraging um, the first three months of our operation, uh, starting to to build build, uh, momentum and get sort of our organisational infrastructure set up so that uh, we can provide a much-needed housing model alternative to the disaster we see um, happening uh, every time we pass the sprawl.
2: Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's like um, everybody just thinks that uh, it shouldn't be so hard for people to be able to get a roof over their heads. But um, despite this, uh, developers and governments don't seem to be able to come up with any answers.
4: Yeah, well, that's exactly it, you know. I was uh, reading a, a piece this morning on the Vic- Victorian state election and uh, the promises offered and there's so much blind faith that finally, developers, after all this time, will actually deliver affordable housing, and uh, you know the profit motive speaks volumes over the social interest um, aspect of it all, and that's one of the real tragedies we have with housing policy: is that not only are there all these demand side prompts with first home buyers grants, and now you know the latest raw to help to buy. Um, which is basically the same thing but instead of giving the cash up front you're you're given a percentage a government will cover a percentage of the equity which is, is you know another way of saying um, we'll help you into the market so you can keep the treadmill going um, so yeah it's uh, it, it's it's almost as if Um, it's been left to our new NGO and there's a press release going out early next week where I think I just need to say it. You know, the the for-profit model has failed us so extensively and uh, we urgently need to reorientate the way our housing Uh, housing policy is structured because we know that it's planned to fail.
2: Mm, Yeah, and the reason for why it's planned to fail, as you said, uh, the um, for-profit model uh, means that it's profit-making that is the focus, not the supply of affordable housing.
4: Yeah, that's right, exactly. And, uh, you know, last time we talked, we talked about this, Stage releases report, which was almost like the perfect segue for me for leaving Prosper Australia. Um, was the Dream report I'd spent ten years working on, and it found that developers would pretty, you know, they would build at a reasonable rate in the first couple of years, and then uh, they were very happy. Government would never look at how much they would slow supply whenever there was a chance of affordability being delivered. And, you know, we've tried to get the C, tried to get the Victorian Auditor-General. No luck there. We're still, you know, I might have left Prosper, but I'm still passionate about this issue. Um, so we're still trying to to find some government body to do the auditing of what happen- what's happening right now. And any bets as interest rates are going up, uh, the supply on offer in the master plan communities will have dropped right off. And uh, they'll be, you know, trying to say it's anyone else's fault uh, but ours. And, um, yeah, this is why, you know, I I kind of see that it's just so literal now, uh, what's known as a property-owning democracy. Property-owns democracy. And it's our biggest uh, sore spot, our biggest weakness. And uh, whether that's mining interests, oil interests, or real estate, you know, they're three of the biggest sectors in the country and uh, government just continues to... Uh, to feed put, the beast. ...addressing that issue. Yeah, feed the beast. It is the too hard basket, you know. It's getting bigger and bigger and we we need the statesmen who can call this out. Um, but unfortunately... uh we're still trying to find those people. And, you know, to see uh, Albanese fall in with the same old uh, philosophies of help to buy, um, sure, they've announced a national accord and we're going to be battling really hard to make sure some of those funding streams come towards community-led, or citizen-led housing. Uh, It still seems like, uh, you know, Groundhog Day when it comes to housing.
2: So tell us about what community land trusts do.
4: Yeah, yes, let's get into it. So uh, 70% of a general uh, mortgage or house price is the land component. So if we're all born as equals onto this planet, imagine if we didn't have to borrow from the banks and then pay interest on it for the next uh, 30 years uh, for that land component. So in Victoria, we can do this. We can uh, basically uh, separate the land from the building, which under the Torrens title system is a bit tricky in New South Wales and Queensland, but uh, that's uh, something um, that the Andrews administration has done that, that helps. So basically, instead of needing a $200,000 deposit here in Victoria, you're going to need about 50000 um, instead of a one million dollar home it 'd be three, you know and having to borrow all that you 'd be borrowing three hundred thousand and uh, the deposit on that is just so much lower so that deposit hurdle we all face is immediately downsized and much more attainable when it's uh, you know that fifty seventy thousand dollar sort of mark so um so yeah that's the first is is getting together a working group of people who can find um, some capital to buy the land at the right time in the property cycle set up a trust that's going to manage this into the future perpetually as an affordable housing um, vehicle and um, what happens typically around the world is they limit um, the, the potential price of any site there at let's say, 70% of the market price. And for me, that's 70%, you know, of $1 million. is still way too much. So uh, we're going to be working hard to have the sort of economic tools behind that to, to lower those prices even further. Uh, but th- that's the basics of it, uh, that um, you, you borrow only for the house and um, your mortgage is that much lower and in in essence, what ends up happening is that you um, you pay a land lease fee as well, and that goes towards your community rather than leaking out to the previous owner and and the banks uh, that you've had to borrow from. So, so are you saying that house...
2: that land lease that land lease concept is is around uh, a maintenance of the property?
4: yeah uh, yeah well it's a bit more than that it's a bit more than that because you know we need to pay something back to the trust but not quite market rate but you know 70 percent of that and um when that happens the trust can pay off its debts in five to seven years and um we can start expanding the base oh. for affordable housing.
2: So what you're saying so, is, you that know. the group, the group, um, the trust buys the land or takes on the mortgage for the land. Is that right? Yep. And the people who are involved there. Uh, Uh, build a house, have got got equity in in it through building the house, but they also put in uh, money to the trust so that the uh, land can be paid off. Is that how it works?
4: Yeah. Yeah, that's how it works. And, you know, in essence, you're seeing your housing payments become a renewable resource and we're closing the loop where the payments from the community in a way go back to that community. And once you've paid down the debts, um, or, you know, even a proportion of them after four or five years, we should be able to go to the banks and say, look, we've proven this business model. Um, we want to borrow a little bit to help set up a social venture that our community wants to run so we can create our own business and, uh, you know, our own, uh, sense of resilience. So, um, you know, that's one of the powerful mechanisms is that, the housing payments no longer are wasted and, and kept within the walls of power. They're democratised amongst the community for them to be able to make, you know, the necessary decisions they need to uh, to make life better.
2: So the um, group of people who are on the plot, of the land, and have the houses, etc., uh, becomes a community in a sense. Uh, what if there's falling outs or how would it actually be governed and who owns what?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Well, uh, the the typical land trust is once managed with a board that has one third residents, one third neighbours, and then one third civic minded individuals who might be former councillors or politicians, academics and the like. And, the, the aim there is to manage this in perpetuity. So uh, we've seen examples around the world where groups have come together and they've paid off their debts in a decade and then become this glorious, nudist art colony. And, um, you know, fantastic for them, but how can we use that precious um, leg up they've got to help other people? Mm. So... Um, by having people who don't live on the site part of the management board it helps keep that objective that long-term objective going uh but when you think about uh, our name grounded um you know we're not just uh looking to ground land prices to to the reality of our wages i'm going to take a deep breath here and try and not sound like a total tosser and i shouldn't even say i shouldn't even say that but you know um one of the things that happens um, particularly on the male side we the alpha males come out in these intentional communities and really um you know throw their weight around sometimes and it's not as democratic or um well hinged as it should be so um Yeah, we want to really try and encourage a sense of personal development um, amongst community members so that they're actually working, you know. We all need to do it to improve ourselves, um, you know, uh, through various sort of um, self-work that we need to do, so... um, yeah, since moving up here to uh, central Victoria around Malmesbury, um, I've become involved in a good old men's group up here. And my, my God, it's been great to have a place to sort of share the, those um, deeper emotions and, and, you know, work through some of your own crap um, and, and brings a sense of humbleness to your approach to life. And, um, yeah, I'm really hoping we can find a way to to communicate that that doesn't sound too hippie and doesn't sound too um, perfect because, you know, God, we've all got our stuff to work through, particularly myself. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, often what happens in the intentional community world is people come together with a passion. They want to get their houses built and they don't get the rules set up so, people then start bickering over cats and dogs versus wildlife corridors. They don't have an exit plan. They haven't got the financial, the economic modeling behind it. So, then people are struggling to actually leave. And yeah, there's all sorts of horror stories in those spaces. So, um, ground is all about reducing those risks and helping. Um, working groups who are coming together to sort of get all those um, ducks in order so that they can, um, yeah, uh, come to it in a um, a well-rounded approach across the, the legal, the economic, the environmental, the social and, of course, um, the planning front so that uh, we've got a chance of of making, you know, the most of living together uh, uh, and, you know, living up to the ideals of of what society could be.
2: So on Tuesday, um, there's going to be a launch. You feel that you've established it enough to launch it to the public?
4: Yes, yes. Um, Had to set a deadline you know, we've got our logo done. We've got our website done. Uh, we've had lots of amazing meetings. We've got some great news we want to share with people, and you know, we want to help um, give people a sense of of hope that you know things can get better. And you know, when you when when you think about um, how bad our economic system is. Um, Chomsky's great statement of, uh, you know, the 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 best revolution is the revolution in your own backyard. Well, that's what we want to help happen uh, with the community land trust movement. So, yeah, we're meeting at the Queen Victoria uh, Women's Centre uh, on uh, Latrobe Street in the city from 6pm on uh, Tuesday night. And um, we've got uh, Sonia Aracol from uh, Think Forward, Fantastic NGO uh, talking about intergenerational equity, and she's got some concerns with what's happening um, uh, budget-wise. You might have seen her on Q and A recently, so she's a really good presenter. And then we've got uh, Bob Knowles from the Apollo Bay Affordable Housing Task Force is going to be talking about uh, the you know quite literal sea change that's gone through their community um the role of airbnb um you know it seems like every week he's got a new mp visiting um down that way trying to to help them move forward so he's got some fantastic stories on potentials going forward and of course a few frustrations um and then uh yeah I'll be doing the sort of grounded spiel um, on, on what we're up to and some of the good news stories that have occurred.
2: Well, I'll be there. I'm hoping other people will turn up as well, Carl.
4: Yeah, would love to uh, see some 3CR faithful there. Um, yeah, it's always good to be back on the airwaves. And, uh, yeah, let's hope we can get some momentum moving forward so that more people recognise that if... Uh, we do the hard yards and, and understand some of these functions, we can get ethical superannuation, ethical investment on our side because, uh, yeah, the development movement um, has has really let us down and it's time we stood up and made things happen for
3: ourselves.
5: Hi, I'm Ahmed from Federal Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR.
3: A week, Solidarity Bricky Team listener, When great excitement here this morning as the week that was unveils a brilliant solution to the great problems facing our economy and the big issue keeping caring employers awake, keeping caring employers tossing and turning night after night. It's so super really that it's a wonder caring employers themselves haven't come up with it. Let's paint the threatening background which inspired this brainwave, and let's not be falsely modest, inspired is the only word that can explain it. See, the problems have been highlighted by this economy-destroying, caring, business-class relations legislation the socialists are attempting to stampede through Parliament which has caring employers tossing and turning in their beds, or whoever's bed they're in, and would have the recently sadly deceased former caring business class relations minister Peter Root the workers turning in his grave. The True Blue Aussie Resources and Energy Employer Profits Association has been forced this week to spend lots of their hard-earned on expensive full-page ads – Explaining how wonderful they are, how they just love their lazy, avaricious workers, achieved by caring employers and the lazy, avaricious reaching mutual agreements. While the socialist legislation has no link to productivity or business success, undermines enterprise decisions of employers and employees, encourages strikes across multiple businesses, increases the power of union bosses at the expense of employees. See, union bosses, bad, bad bosses, unlike good resource bosses who care about their employees. And goodness me, strikes, strikes. And then a big red, no thanks, a return to seventy style conflict will damage troubleozy's economy and jobs. Work with us, not against us. See common sense in our common interests and infrastructure contractors expressed anger and dismay that the bill would risk billions of dollars of infrastructure. universities demanded to be exempted from the legislation. That True Blue Aussie icon we all love, the big True Blue Aussie BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, said multi-employer bargaining had no place in the mining industry. And that's just a sample of caring employer concerns. Clearly, there's one constant at the core of those concerns. Workers. Lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions. So therein lies the obvious solution, our brilliant inspired idea. Get rid of workers altogether. That's that'll I'll teach them. Caring employers' constant and biggest worry would vanish in one fell swoop. They can sleep peacefully at night again, which they'll need to because they'll be so exhausted after doing all that work. But content as the boardrooms and the caring employers do the work themselves. True Blue Aussies' filthiest rich, Gina, Twitty, throwing a shovel or a pick over their shoulder and getting down into the mine and extracting all that lovely profit. Well, they're described as miners, therefore they're just living up to their job description. So there we have it, and that'll teach the evil unions and the lazy avaricious they brainwash and the socialists who are puppets of the evil unions for so upsetting the filthiest rich of and threatening the delicate flower that is the economy. Caring employers can go about their business without any worry of unions and workers demanding crippling work practices like Wages and rights nights off and weekends off and expensive safety measures and superannuation and, oh, it goes on and on. What a relief to leave all that behind them. See, told you it was inspired. Can't believe how caring employers haven't thought of it before. Like the Trouble Developers and Construction Profits Association, which in an in depth interview said abolishing the smash the evil unions, jackboots, commission would destroy the planet faster than we could say CFMEU, evil, evil CFMEU, and the government must not abolish it. Uh, but, the interviewer butted, abolishing the commission mission with an election promise. "'Under duress from the evil unions, it is imperative for the good for good of all of us "'that the government break that promise. "'All reasonable blue Aussies who believe in the rule of law would understand that.'" Right, the week that was joined in. And, of course, in the economic circumstances, the government must contemplate whether it should keep its promise to provide massive tax cuts for the filthiest rich of the filthy rich. That would be a betrayal of the true blue Aussie people. Governments can't just break promises as they see fit. An election promise is an election promise. And all reasonable true blue Aussies would never forgive them if they broke an election promise that is so important to the true blue Aussie economy. Admittedly, as she picks up the shovel and heads for the mine to do a day's work, Gina would be advised to wear something a little more appropriate than the outfit and jewellery she wore last week to the 2022 Executive of the Year Awards. Our invitation must have got held up in the mail lister. Outfit and jewellery worth more than $1 million. Indeed, her pearl and sapphire necklace alone was estimated at a million, let alone everything else, including very expensive label with jewelled thongs. We assume they mean the ones on your feet. Anyway, perhaps swap them for some haute couture work clothes, expensive label hard hat milliner, for instance when she gets back, of course, because Gina was last seen at Mar-a-Lago for former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald or the pause, exciting I'm running again announcement, Gina having repeatedly expressed her great admiration for Donald. A small sacrifice, but she won't be able to private jet around the world when she has to get down to the mine every day and then load the trains and trucks and get them to the coast, but, but all worth it. Relieved with and her worries with workers exploiting and taking advantage of her goodness are gone forever. And weekends, and in their time off, they'll have to pop out and buy all the goods they manufacture or dig up, given those workers they're thankfully rid of won't be able to afford anything. Too late, though, for poor Deliver Poo. Forced to close its worker friendly operation, and what thanks does it get? What sympathy does it get from the heartless union which reckons it closed because it saw changes coming that would force it to pay its workers and other crippling conditions? Correction it, it doesn't have any workers, contractor friendly operation, it, it's contractors on push bikes, as if when it's obvious it has been crushed by the greed of those contractors. And the socialists want to stampede through a bill that will make life even more difficult for generous, caring employers with no employees like Deliver And the government also interfered, where it is none of its business as poor transnational tugboat operator Spitz on the Workers faces the recalcitrant evil union, which for three years has refused to accept Spitz on the Workers' most reasonable offer to slash wages and conditions, which have such a negative impact on its bottom line, forced to go on strike or, sorry, sorry, to to lock out its money-grabbing workforce with the odd flow-on effect for the country. Yet again, this terrible, evil union threat poor spits on the workers was ordered by the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it commissioned not to lock out its workforce. The commission's gone mad. Given things could get worse for poor spits on the workers, if the socialists succeed in getting this anti true bill through, imagine the frustration and anger in the company's Copenhagen boardroom at all this injustice. Back to Gina at Donald's place, as Donald told the panting masses, I am your voice, the greatest voice ever, ever. Not a task, he pointed out, for politicians. I wonder if he saw the ironic contradiction in that. But anyway, he keeps turning up at his MAGA cap. Make America great again. Isn't that the slogan with which he flooded the US of six years ago? What happened during those four years he had to make America great again? Oh, obviously, the current big supremo Joe Biden capital has made America not great again. Undone the good work of the greatest make America great again ever, ever. That, of course, is as long as America and the planet survive to be made great again as as COP27 winds up to reassemble again at COP28. Given they've had 26 previous attempts to find solutions to that which they're addressing, then at the rate of amelioration, they'll be having the same conversation at COP 57, except life on earth probably won't get there, with the fossils dominating the discussions and reasserting their commitment to keep fossils fossiling while addressing the problems of fossils fossiling, which when we think about it is True Blue Aussie's policy for reducing pollution as well. Why let not making a super-duper obscene windfall profit come between the boardrooms and the end of the planet? The fossils will die very rich people. On which that misnomer Vic Forest's misnomer, because we'd assume a state body called Vic Forest's role is to protect our forests, but, but no, its role is to chainsaw them while providing massive subsidies to the chainsaws. On which a couple of weeks uh, there was a go, the Supreme Court found in a case brought by a couple of interfering anti-progress, goody-goody, long-haired, commie environment groups, that Vic Forest had failed to observe the law protecting endangered possums, and was ordered to cease chainsawing pending a further hearing. The guardian of our forest said it was disappointed with Her Honour's ruling and would consider its options. Well, this week a quote. Right leading think tank called Blueprint Institute reported that ending native forest logging in the Central Highlands would generate an extra 60 million in benefits, while the state government now spends 200 million to support the chainsaws. The thing that really baffles us, the report reports, is that for a long period of time, it's been a completely loss-making government-subsidised industry that can't compete against plantation forests. Oh, and they said the economic advantages of not chainsawing applies to all native forests. How dare a right-leading mob threaten the 200000000 million-plus public subsidy to the chainsaws? After all, given that COP27 repeats the previous 26, we may as well chop them down because there'll be no one round long enough to enjoy them. Brickbats and a bit of advice to Extinction Rebellion activists in His Most Gracious Majesty's home country after one of them threw four eggs at His Majesty and our Queen Camilla as they visited York as part of their onerous working life of kinging and queening. Brickbats because he missed. So finally, that's our bit of advice. Extinction Rebellion starting its start introducing throwing practice. Good morning.
2: Yeah, you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, that was Kevin going through the week. And we've got uh, Dave Ball, Assistant Secretary of the MUA Victorian branch on the line and we're going to talk about Svitsa or, as Kevin called them, spit on the workers. Couldn't get it better better said, right? Well, how, how are you, Dave?
1: I'm very good, Annie, and thank you for uh, having me on. Yeah, well, they've, they've got quite a few different names now, including Schitzer. Um, I kind
2: of like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Now, um, now they've moved on. So it's been let's let's give our listeners a background to this. We're talking about towage. We're talking about a, a Danish company, multinational, made huge amounts of money. And it's been called profiteering through COVID, oh. uh, and it's uh, basically become almost a, a got a stranglehold on towage in uh, Australian ports, doesn't it?
1: You would have to say it does. It operates in 17 ports around Australia. Most of those ports, there's no competition in the port. And, um, yeah, so that's pretty much a monopoly. And certainly the four major ports in Australia and all the container terminals, Spitzer control all of them through their top right, uh, towage licensing arrangement. So, yeah, they really do have the, the country to and I think we saw that, you know, we have been seeing that over the last couple of days or weeks or even years, depending on where you've come into the story, but um, you know, just to how powerful and how critical they are. And, uh, you know, the only logical you know, outcome I can see from what people have seen in this situation to, to arise, and with Fair Work Australia issu- issuing the 424, section 424 on Switzer yesterday, um, forcing them to cease all their industrial action as a matter of, uh, you know, causing the economy grave harm and uh, grave harm to the Australian people and I I just think it's it's a big push and we should be pushing for nationalisation of such an essential service. Um, I don't know how many industries you could identify could actually cripple a country so quickly and that's why Fair Fair Work Australia acted so quickly yesterday.
2: So does that mean that uh, Svitsa has to stop the lockout or that they're going to stop the lockout?
1: Yeah, that's right. They've, um, the, the lockout was meant to start at 12 o'clock yesterday. And, yeah, it was a strategy by Spitzer. They gave us five days' notice that they were going to lock out all their workers in those 17 ports. Under the Act, they only have to give you five minutes' notice. So it was a strategy. They wanted everyone to respond to the potential harm and damage that it was going to do to uh, lock out all those workers. And Svitsa were... Uh, I think their ultimate aim was to have Fair Work Australia terminate the uh, protected action in the, by both parties and force force an arbitrated outcome with the agreement, which I don't think really would have gone... In, well, I'm sure it wouldn't have gone in favour of the workers. So, fortunately, we avoided that. Fair Work Australia um, only suspended the action, suspended the action for six months. At the moment, we're waiting for further details around the order and what that will mean, but... I imagine it will be uh, both, both parties. Well, there's actually four parties because there's the AMOU, the Officers' Union, AINTI, the Engineers' Union, and our union, the MUA, and, of course, Svita, um, in a room together with a conciliator, um, probably someone from Fair Work Australia, and hopefully over the next six months we can come to a negotiated agreement that, that uh, you know, the MERSC shipping who own Svita, their, their core values... Clearly state that workers should have a right to collectively bargain and negotiate a workplace agreement.
2: Well, this is fascinating, isn't it? Because for four years they've basically engineered a wages freeze.
1: Well, that's right. That there's been no pay rises for four years, and money has never really been an issue in this discussion. Uh, you know, at different times the unions have put offers together that included zero pay rises just to get an agreement, just to secure a job, just to get their job job security. So they've had a pay freeze for four years during a period where they've um, made their biggest profits in the history, in the history of Danish uh, corporations. And that was during COVID, while everyone was, uh, you know, getting, getting, having all sorts of restrictions and lockouts and these shipping com- companies just gouging profit out of the economy. And they just went ahead in leaps and bounds. So... Yeah, it, it just uh, it astounds me how this is played
2: out. Yeah, there's a couple of other issues, though. Uh, I mean, people talk about uh, wages, but actually we're talking about trying to turn towage into a gig economy.
1: That's right. They, uh, there is a competitor to Fitzer in Australia um, that does employ some of their employees. Well, employee, they employ... They form cooperatives um, where the employee loses all their all their rights to all the benefits that unions have fought for over the years, their personal leave, holiday pay, sick pay, long service leave, and they become a part owner in the business, and therefore they're exposed to all the liabilities that could happen. And it's it's just as soon as the profit goes down, their their conditions and wages go down. So it's very much like the gig economy.
2: But it's also the one of the things that the uh officers were talking about uh, and the engineers that what they were saying is that they that uh, spitzer wanted to be able to ring them up at the drop of a hat to get them in to come and do uh, uh, shifts uh, and it was undermining the whole process of uh, the ebb and flow of the work because it's very dangerous work
1: it is very dangerous work and of course it's shift work runs 24 hours a day these workers do 182 12-hour shifts in a year, and that, uh, that equates to, you know, about two or 300 hours more than a worker who's doing a 35-hour week. So they're doing long hours. And, um, yeah, to put them on call during that period and not pay them in between, it would be obscene. And there's, you know, also emergency requirements where, you know, the Port of Melbourne requires two tugs to always be available for any emergency... And we see that all the time in shipping where ships get blown off the wharf, lines break. Um, and, of course, recently where we had those couple of vessels in New South Wales where engines failed and they got into serious trouble. And it was the, the towage industry that um, saved those ships and saved the environment and the people around them.
2: So uh, this has been a very uh, a confrontational uh, situation. And, in fact, Paddy Crumlin, the... Uh, uh, head of uh, the union has talked about uh, m- uh, employer uh, militancy. Uh, it, it's a it, this is a very unusual approach to uh, industrial relations, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think
1: you know, for a lot of people, we've probably seeing the first time where the employer is um, being the more aggressive. Party in an agreement, maybe not the first. Oh, that's probably not right. Not the first time. No, Patrick's
2: was did this, yeah,
1: yeah. But, um, I don't really like us describing the company as militant. That's our word. We're militant, they're not militant, they're just scoundrels and mongrels. That's so, yeah, but, um, they certainly have been acting aggressively, holding the country to ransom, and, um, you no, know, as I said earlier, uh, I think it leads, has to lead to a discussion around nationalisation of the sewage industry.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for talking to us this morning.
1: Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me.
5: around people like it's something to say. Some folks might think it's just another cliche But well, there's blood on our hands We got blood in the streets We gotta get together, start singing for peace. I know sometimes that it might hurt We gotta take a stand, throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works, my friends Well, I've seen it all so many times before rich man he comes knocking at your door fooled you into thinking you could own a house now he's telling your family that they gotta move out you're paying last week's bills with next week's wages don't be waiting around for no profits off saviors cause the church owns most the land in this world but there's still plenty of homeless boys and girls well i know So on and on and on, where the goes, my friends. But the wind still blows and the creeks haven't flowed till the end. And where we're headed, well, there ain't nobody knows, my friends. But the tides are washing and they wash it all away again. We ain't come too far from the days of the cave. Now we're all just walking, talking, national slaves. And they charge us too much, they pay us not enough. Get to are getting where it's going, and they're gonna be tough. And they smash the unions and the public schools. This country's run by bigots and bludgers and fools. The squeeze on the poor's getting tighter. One man's terrorist is another's freedom fighter, I know. Well, I know sometimes it might seem hard, but if we don't learn from history, well, we won't get far. You gotta stand up to your devil, look him in the eye, say, come on, man, well, I'll see you outside. You're hurting all of the ones I love So I'm gonna start a push when it comes to the show. I know sometimes that it might hurt We gotta take a stand, throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works, in the works my friends But well, I know sometimes that it might hurt Gotta take a stand, throw a spanner in the works, throw a spanner in the works, throw a spanner in the works, my friend, throw a spanner in the works, throw a spanner in the works, my
2: friend. Yeah, a word from Jack Mancourt, spanner in the works, and uh, you're back with Annie on solidarity breakfast on three c r your community radio station and we're going to move quickly to vera consistine who is the secretary of uh, the uh um uh, the pensioners uh fair go for pensioners sorry yeah, uh, fair go for pensioners and uh, there was they had a um there was a uh, a, sort of a, almost a campaign launch, but it was a, 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 a launch of, uh, in, in an investigation into the age pension. And it was called The Age Pension, What's Going On? And it was, uh, intimated a new, uh, campaign called the CAP campaign. But I'll let, uh, um, Vera talk about this, uh, so that you get an understanding of what, uh, it's a, it's all around why age pension is are in poverty because of the nature of uh, the age pension uh, in Australia and what's going on there. So have a listen.
6: Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I'm the Secretary of Fair Go for Pensioners, and I have a background in accounting. I'll just start off with this. I, I just have to say this. As grandparents, we are loved and respected and play a vital role in society not just as grandparents, but as charity workers, volunteers all over the place, Uh, but as pensioners, uh, as the term is, you know, sort of for society, we are absolutely reviled. And that's thanks to, um, as a result of a decade of sledging from the government and, and neglect from successive governments. An example of recent, is the recent publicity stunt that, um, um, Amanda Rishworth came out with when she announced pensioners were getting the biggest increase ever, 5.1%. Well, not true. It, this misinformation caused a public backlash against any suggestion that pensioners were due for an increase when, in fact, pensioners received 4%, not 55 not 5.1%. They received a 4% increase. And two weeks after that, inflation was announced at 7.3%. So the total shortfall was actually 3.3%, which pensioners have to carry till next April. So that's the biggest increase ever. Um, So pensioners have have no voice or representation in Canberra. Nobody complained about that. Nobody speaks up for this kind of misinformation or neglect. Now, the formula for calculating the six-month adjustment is outdated and is not fit for purpose. The formula should be reviewed on a regular basis for currency, but it hasn't been reassessed since 2009, 14 years ago, especially the MTAWE and the ratio between singles and couples. So what got me going as um, Secretary for Fair Go for Pensioners was a reply that we got from the Department of, uh, what does she call herself, um, uh, older Australian branch of the Department of Social Services. Under social security law, base pension rates are indexed every March and September to ensure they keep pace with increases in the cost of living. These rates are calculated according to the provision in legislation and are not a government decision. The cost of living is measured by the consumer price index, CPI, and the pensioner beneficiary living cost index. That's a An interesting one. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Base pension rates are also benchmarked to the male total average weekly earnings to align them with community living standards. Now, I've underlined it and I've got it in red. The couple-based pension is benchmarked to 41.76% of MTAWE and the singles to 27.7%. Now, it's an elaborate formula. When, When I read it, I, I must admit, admit I sort of thought oh, you know it's, it's a bit too elaborate. We've got two indexes we've got the PblCI and the CPI then we've got a benchmark then we've got the ratio and then we've got the principle to align them with community living standards. but when you really uh, when you really unpack this we discovered that there's some serious flaws in this formula just to show you that you can actually you can shoot holes through any of these indexes. This is the PBLCI. And according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, they say that housing costs for pension is a 23% of the pension. Okay, so the pension's forty four hundred and sixty nine the basic pension is four hundred and sixty nine dollars. So twenty-three percent of that's $107.59. Now, I'll be very generous and I'll put the Commonwealth Rental Assistance on this of $71. It's $180. And I still can't imagine where anybody is going to find a rental or any kind of accommodation, even maintain a premises for $180 a week. I say it's $320 plus plus uh, CRA. So that's a big difference between $107 or $180 and 320 plus plus cra now uh, i've also looked at, at the others like transport and communication they're all a bit wrong but not to worry too much but then let's get down to the end of the alphabet utilities now utilities isn't even mentioned in the pblci so you know according to uh, the abs pensioners don't have electricity or gas or 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 water um to their place, so I've actually added a bit for for utilities. So I've come up with seven hundred and thirty-one dollars a week to their four hundred and sixty-nine. So that's a huge difference. The PBLCI is very erroneous. It's 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 not really. It, I don't know who's who's maintaining it, but it certainly doesn't doesn't fit into the real world of pensioner costs. Leaving that aside, let's move on to this um, MTAWE the three uh, benchmarks of of male earnings. We've got adult gross. Now that's adult ordinary plus overtime. That's $1,961 a week. Then we've got adult ordinary, which is ordinary 38 hours a week, normal normal people pay. And that is the, the benchmark that would align with community living standards. And then we've got this, uh, this MTAWE down here, which is actually 439, which is actually less than the current pension per week. So, so the government have recognised that this benchmark, um, because it's, it's less than, it's, it's below poverty. So they've actually recognised that the benchmark isn't working. And the MTAWE measures all employees which includes a workforce of under 21-year-old apprentices, juniors, kids working at McDonald's. Now, you know, kids working at McDonald's are there to earn a few extra bobs. They're living at home with their parents. Uh, they don't. That, it doesn't align with um, pensioners' living costs in any shape or form, and nor, does a, nor do apprentices who might be earning a few extra bob uh, while, they're, while they're doing their apprenticeship. Um, and they're either still living at home or they're sharing uh, accommodation with a whole bunch of mates. So, you know, does, does that really align with, with pension and community living standards? I don't think so. I maintain it is the wrong benchmark. The appropriate benchmark is male adult ordinary weekly earnings. Now, back in 2009, when this ratio was set, uh, at um, they decided that singles the cost of us for a single is two thirds of a couple. And that might well have been the case back in, in 2009, but since then, the cost of housing and transport and utilities and all the kind of costs that are shared by a couple have gone up enormously. The singles have had to bear that cost. And so that the ratio between singles and couples has changed in those years, but it has never been reassessed. So over 14 years, the changes now put singles as requiring 77%, not 66% of a couple. So, and that translates to 35% of the male total average weekly earnings, whatever that may be. So what we're saying is that this should be lifted to the adult ordinary time so for for singles that would be 518 and for couples that would be 769 but what we're also saying is that the ratio between singles and couples is wrong and that singles should now be on 655 and couples on 769 now that is a huge difference to what they're on now it almost looks ridiculous but that's what's happened over the years, and it explains the poverty amongst single-aged pensioners. I'll just move on to, to one other uh, briefly because this is not actually part of our submission at the moment, but uh, just an example with housing, uh, which goes towards the poverty. A single-aged pensioner who's, who's renting is suffering extreme hardship at the moment, and it's very obvious. One of the major cost factors in rent is state land tax. Now, land tax is not payable on the primary place of residence, but is payable on an investment property. And it's based on land value. And this cost has escalated by 300% over the past six years for the landlord. And that has to be passed on to the tenant. This has never been acknowledged in Commonwealth Rental Assistance. So we have a situation where the federal government provides $71 per week to uh, a pensioner who's renting in Commonwealth Rental Assistance. The federal government gives the pensioner $71 a week, and the state government takes away $120 a week in land taxes through the through the um, through the landlord. Is that not ridiculous? Then we take a situation where you've got a block of units where neighbouring pensioners. Have very differing costs, the pensioner who owns their unit is living in their primary residence and it is exempt from land tax. whereas the pensioner next door who is renting has a land tax component in the rent of about one hundred and twenty dollars a week on a on a unit that's worth about four hundred and fifty and there's not even a lot of units around for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars these days, even though that is the 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 um, pensioners, uh, the renting pensioners' primary residence. And this is a major cause of homelessness, especially amongst older women who are being evicted um, in, in great numbers at the moment. Really, this homelessness is core, for, especially for older women who've been living in a, in a rental property maybe for years and years, now can't afford that very rental property because um, the uh, the cost has gone up so much, and it's gone up because of land tax, and totally inadequate Commonwealth rental assistance, and inadequate pension as well. So they just can't win, uh, really. Uh, so what we've got the principle back to, back to our letter, um, where they say that the, you know the principle is to align with community living standards. Well, what we have for pensioners is homelessness, isolation elderly abuse, malnutrition, financial hardship, and anxiety and mental health. Now, is, is that the kind of community living standards we want for pensioners? That's, no. that's what it's come to. And the current statutory standard of the benchmark and that elaborate formula of indexes and ratios is so obsolete. In fact, it's now responsible for some of these social problems. According to the government, any increase would cause inflation and be a burden on the economy. Oh, dear, idea. Oh, dear. <laughs> so the purpose of our campaign, which we're calling CAP, is to demand a realistic, straightforward and transparent formula for future six-monthly adjustments that would ensure aged pensioners have a fair and decent living standard with financial security so that no pensioner is left behind.
2: Yeah, there you go. And that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast at this week we heard about uh heard from palestine we uh heard about uh grounded a community land trust advocacy launch on tuesday november the 22nd 6 p.m queen victoria women's center this is the week that was followed uh we got a word from dave ball assistant secretary of mua victoria branch about spitzer or spit on the workers and uh uh, we n- now know about what's going on in the age pension and the new campaign cap uh, to right wrongs. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with the White Stripes Seven Nations.